Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a hearing today before the House Energy and Commerce Committee at which the CEO of TikTok was aggressively grilled, with the Republican chair announcing at the outset that TikTok should be banned, going on to say, quote, To the American people watching today, hear this. TikTok is a weapon of the Chinese Communist Party to spy on you, manipulate what you see, and exploit for future generations. Joining us is David Carroll, a professor of media design at the New School and director of its design and technology MFA program. He is known for legally challenging Cambridge Analytica and related companies in the UK courts to recapture his 2016 voter profile using European data protection law. Featured in the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, his work explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry and education, and his research examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media and journalism. We will discuss the need to go beyond beating up on TikTok and look into the data mining business models of the big tech companies like Facebook, Meta, which are based on surveillance capitalism. Then we'll investigate the unreported campaign conducted by Israel to influence the 2016 election to get Trump elected, which involved Israeli agents working for Netanyahu, who supplied the Trump campaign with information of the Russian hacks of Hillary Clinton's emails and the DNC. Joining us is James Bamford, a best-selling author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker for PBS, award-winning investigative producer for ABC News, and winner of the National Magazine for reporting for his writing in Rolling Stone on the war in Iraq. He has also circumnavigated the surface of the earth, crossing every meridian of longitude by land and sea, and was elected to membership in the Explorers Club. James is the author of the best-selling books Body of Secrets, The Puzzle Palace, A Pretext for War, 9-11 Iraq and the Abuse of American Intelligence Agencies, and The Shadow Factory Inside the Ultra-Secret NSA from 9-11 to Spying on America. And his latest book, Just Out, is Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. And we will discuss his article at The Nation, The Trump Campaign's Collusion with Israel. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is David Carroll, a professor of media design at the New School and director of its design and technology MFA program. He is known for legally challenging Cambridge Analytica and related companies in the UK courts to recapture his 2016 voter profile using European data protection law. Featured in the Netflix documentary The Great Hack, his work explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry and education, and his research examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media and journalism. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Carroll. It is great to be back. Thanks so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And today, the CEO of TikTok was grilled before Congress. And also, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said TikTok should be ended one way or another. So it looks like the U.S. government's declared war on TikTok. It's already been banned in India and banned on government sites across Europe and in Canada. 
what is this war about? It's a good question, and it's uh, funny. I'm I'm uh, realizing it's it's sort of the five year anniversary of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Sort of this time five years ago, um, that news story was um, in the the media and, and drawing our attention to data privacy issues as a function of national securities and uh, the elections and democratic process. So. There's uh, been an awareness of the political dimensions of social media for some time now. These ideas have been building. And I'm also reminded that uh, in May of 2019, um, I wrote a piece for courts kind of predicting this in a little ways. I I, I sort of asked uh, TikTok's privacy uh, department if I could have my data from TikTok or really ask questions about where the data was located as we had learned that this really matters. And um, the, the response was quizzical at, 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 at best and sort of pointed to the problems that would come down the, the road and the, the necessity for the company to technically unwind its data operations in a way that would satisfy these problems that were also illustrated in the Cambridge Analytica affair, that where the data is stored mattered. And so the executive uh, in the hearings, and it, it was reminiscent in a way of the Zuckerberg Cambridge Analytica hearings in the way that uh, the politicians get to seen as if they're being tough on the executive. So there's a, definitely a, a performance that goes into play that probably will be in a documentary someday about the TikTok affair. So um, there is there is that dim dimension, the grandstanding that the company sort of accused Congress of performing today is part of this. So the debate is is really, I think, over the problems of data privacy and corporate control over these platforms and the unique problems presented by a, a company based in the in in China and the, the tensions that ar arise because of those unique political and legal conditions. So I, I, I definitely tried to warn the company in a way. You guys are going to have to solve your data sovereignty problem. And the Project Texas that they tout this idea of outsourcing the Americans' data control to the company Oracle is promoted as the solution, but some don't see it as a, a, a an adequate firewall. And others, you know, point out, such as Julia Angwin in a piece in the New York Times, uh, that you know, or Oracle is a significant operator in the data broker in the industry, or Oracle is where people go to buy and sell data. So. Um, there's an irony in where are we really trying to protect the privacy? So I think it's very controversial for good reasons that um, it's a case where many things can be true and both sides can have good points. And um, I can I, I, I'm not sure how it's going to get resolved, but I would agree that the prospect of banning this kind of software sets some, you know, disturbing precedence and escalates things that we may not that may that may be a road we 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 don't want to go down but then what's the solution well why aren't we talking about the data privacy rights that aren't there that if uh, all companies had to abide by more responsible practices then maybe we we could say we could be, have more confidence in these platforms so, David, just to touch on the hearings before the Congress, the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, she opened the today's hearing by telling Chu, the CEO of TikTok, that your platform should be banned. <laughs> that, that was right out of the gate. And then later in the hearing, Representative Kat Kamek uh, had this lengthy critique of TikTok and was just ranting on. And Chu finally turned to the chair and said, can I respond, chair? And Kathy McMorris-Rogers thought about it for a minute and they said, 
no, we're going to move on. I mean, a bit of a kangaroo court, wouldn't you say? Yeah, as I said, there's there's a strong uh, interest in, in the lawmakers to um, show their fighting. Um, uh, and, and there is we're in a, you know, a moment of heightened tensions with China related to other tech in industry questions, even down to the semiconductors that the software runs on. So um, there's a lot of geopolitical drama uh, at play in this hearing, and uh, and it is interconnected with all the other drama and discord that is all just was already existing uh, in the United States Congress, uh, probably since the Cambridge Analytica affair and all the other uh, hearings and and opportunities to try to hold companies more accountable and but bumping up against the kind of limits of even the tools that. Congress has it at its disposal to do so. So I think um, I think that that's another elephant in the room, uh, no pun intended, but that there's only so much that Congress can do here except make a, a performance of fighting because the alternative is banning apps. And then, you know, I just, how far does that escalate? Well, this hearing started off in terms of the testimony from TikTok's CEO, where he tried to stress that TikTok is independent from China, and he kept trying to play up its ties to the United States, saying TikTok itself is not available in mainland China. We're headquartered in Los Angeles and Singapore, and we have 7,000 employees in the U.S. today. So that didn't seem to work, right? I mean, what's the problem here? Obviously, the holding company, ByteDance, is in China so nobody believes that TikTok is independent from the Chinese government. Is that the problem? Yeah, it, it's to me. I find it very reminiscent of the, the sort of process and discovery of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and kind of realizing, wait, this company is not based in the U.S. Where is it? Oh, it's based in the U.K. Oh, and then it's a subsidiary of this. And, and you find out there's a larger company and it's part of a larger organization. And then you start to. Uh, you start to put those pieces together and then you start to realize that corporate power and corporate structure really does matter in technology and data issues because it's like who owns and controls the software and the data that's uh, running these operations, whether it be invisible things like uh, voter profiling or extremely visible things like the most popular social media app in, an, in a generation. So you said that early, uh, a minute ago that it may be impractical or difficult to ban because what they'd have to do is is ban the apps, right, at Google and Apple stores, right? Yeah, like the, the sort of how is, is the government going to impose upon the private sector to say you can't have this app? And the only other uh, democracy that has done that is in is in India. So there is precedent for doing it, but you know, India also has a larger free expression censorship problem that you could also point to. So, I would say in this case, you know, we we have to do we we do want to ba balance things, and and in my view, looking at the sort of fundamental problem here, which is where are the data privacy laws and enforcement that would sort of alleviate our underlying tensions here, and where are the corporate structure and power, you know, governance that we can, again, have better confidence in the system. And that's ultimately why the Biden administration's stance seems to be, you know, you got to divest so we can really have confidence that this is um, a corporate structure that's independent because of all the various legal issues that do, do play out when you want to, when something goes wrong and you have to hold people accountable, as we saw in Cambridge Analytica, can be really messy. Well, in the case of the Indian government's ban of TikTok, they disabled downloads and demanded that internet service providers block it altogether. So, could the U.S. do something like that? Yes, that that that's the those are the kinds of you know technical scenarios that um, freedom of expression and internet freedom advocates you know are they find that nightmarish that we have to create precedent to 
um, ban, ban and block this particular so software. In in the U.S., we don't have, you know, there's not a lot of precedent to to point to to pressuring companies and 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 ISP providers, or you know, down to the, the deep level of the internet. It's just uh, that's why I don't think banning is going to achieve uh, the best outcome, nor is it going to solve the underlying anxieties that have bubbled to the surface here. Well, again, you know, you've got the Secretary of State saying it's going to be done one way or the other. I mean, that's, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's like a declaration of war. Yeah, I guess that's some uh, are calling for the necessity to show the evidence that this is such a dire threat beyond the theoretical. And, you know, I, I feel like I was one of the first people to point out the theoreticals of, of even just where is the data, folks. But um, uh, for this new app that uh, all, the, all the young people are using all of a sudden. But I think the they're 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 they they're. they're and I think there's a, a, that puts the the State Department in a rough position potentially because they may not want to declassify what they know. We we do know some um, behavior of the company through reporting, especially through Forbes, of the kind of you know conduct that you don't that you uh, wouldn't want to or that you you would worry about, such as um, the company trying to use its own software to. Uh, unmask the journalists who you know are, are working on investigating the company but you know of course um, american companies have done that too so there's it's also very easy in this conversation to find the potentially false equivalency or at least the well, what aboutism and uh that that is what you hear from people who are like why are we focused on tiktok um and so i think that's because there's all these other companies who who work who operate and have access to s similar kinds of data. So I think the it puts the Biden administration in the position of having to better articulate why TikTok is different from other companies in the sense of what are we really worried about? And is it data and something else? And so I think it's worth mm, evaluating if the administration is succeeding at communicating that. Well, again, Secretary of State Blinken said that TikTok should be ended one way or another, but then he went on to note that there are different ways of doing that, and then he was speaking at a separate House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing, and then he was asked whether he could ban it outright, and he wasn't sure. He said, clearly, we, the administration, others are seized with the challenge that it poses and are taking action to address it. So that's sort of a a non-answer. So just to sort of cut through all the bluster, you wonder, I mean, the, what, the, what the Chinese are saying is a little in the area of trolling, but I think they might have a point. They're saying, how come the world's big superpower is so afraid of a bunch of kids sharing videos of themselves dancing? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, this, this is a very... Um this has always been the response that I've ever always gotten uh, when sort of I've tried to cr criticize the kind of problem that TikTok finds itself in is always like, why does it matter? It's just people having fun. And and I think the concerns are, yes, just like all apps, it has a window into our life uh, through the data footprint that we leave just by uh, using the app and it's access to all the services that it has. Uh, so it does have all the usual things and then additional things that, you know, are a little bit too technical to get into, but, but are of concern. And then there's also the, it, how the algorithm and its content policies determine the content that people are seeing in a very personalized way. So there is a kind of like, what is the targeting and personalization and is that a threat model? And I think especially um, Secretary Blinken and the State Department and, and others in the government, like how they are describing the kind of information space threat in more specific ways that might, I think, further justify the argument, but also further complicate how they're going to achieve this. Because 
is it you know this it, is is it is it is it is a solution ultimately going to run up against um, the ideas of the First Amendment? Well, the CEO of TikTok, Chu, was more or less saying this is all very theoretical, and I guess the point that you made, David, is that maybe the reason that the U.S. government can't come out with any categorical reason why TikTok is a, a danger to U.S. national security and has to be banned has something to do with their thought, sources and methods and what they understand are Chinese capabilities. Is that what you think? Yeah, I mean, it's more coming from my experience uh, trying to participate in and observing closely the Cambridge Analytica investigations and their myriad of venues and the details that were able to be extracted and then the things that were were not able to be extracted and the 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 details that were sort of were will always be uh un, 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 unobtainable the secrets there so uh, having that sense of you know, there are limits to what can be ultimately achieved even with a deep investigation so i i, don't, I think we have to uh, um, it's it's difficult for us to know the the, the real threats because um, they're shrouded in mystery and they require so much effort, so much legal effort. It takes years, meaning in the case of Cambridge Analytica, it's been five years of deep investigation to get deep into the, the forensics there. So I think even when you know something went wrong in, in, in that case, it takes a long time to really figure out the details. So I think in this case, the more we can understand about the specifics of what people are worried about, or I think that would st strengthen the argument and and help people who are very worried about the consequences of this, you know, potentially find a way to ra rationalize it or un understand the way that it's going to be <laughs> eliminated one way or the other. The, the legal mechanism by which that'll happen, probably some international tr trade law or something. But again, that's not my specialty. Well, but this didn't stop the chair again of the House Energy Committee that um, chaired the hearing today, Representative McMorris Rogers. She said, quote, To the American people watching today, hear this. TikTok is a weapon by the Chinese Communist Party to spy on you, manipulate what you see, and exploit for future generations. So, yeah. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to be in, in Chu's shoes. Uh, I know. Having to defend uh, against those kind of attacks. I mean, boy, this is like Cold War kind of language, isn't it? It is, it is. But there's like, as a parent of, of a... A teen, you know, who who uh, has been on TikTok uh, since the pandemic lockdown, and 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 has observed how it it's a a real element of this generation's life. Um, that it puts the context into the statement, uh, and also what you know why I think it is something as as this this much is at stake, because. It as a medium, you know, was sort of the next generation of social media in terms of a new format that emerged. You know, we had the, the text of Twitter and the image of Instagram and, and TikTok was a kind of next generation media that this generation really took to and especially during the lockdown pandemic. And it really was the place that they interacted in the absence of school um, and so it's very powerful for that this generation. So um, the there is political ramifications here. That um, what is this? If the this if the government succeeds in banning the app, and all of a sudden one day it's gone, it's going to leave an imprint on these soon to be registered voters. Uh, and 150 I, that, million, I might add. Yeah, David. it's that's a it's a, that that's a calculation here, too. Uh, is it worth it to saber rattle with China or get down to the real fundamentals of let's protect data privacy for everyone, for every app, not just TikTok? Sure. Well, let's focus on that in the last couple of minutes, then, David, because 
obviously the business model for Facebook and all these big tech companies, Google, etc., is what they call surveillance capitalism. So this is the pot calling the kettle black, right? When you say it's the Chinese are a threat, what about what Facebook and others have been doing with data mining? And my God, if they if Meta puts a helmet on every kid's head and has them live in this virtual world, I think it's the end of civilization, frankly. Yes, I I think um, the t- TikTok is a convenient distraction from the conversation that that Washington should really be having. They came close to having in the last Congress, which was to pass the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which passed out of committee, but never uh, got beyond that. But it's sort of the closest the U.S. Has, has come to a comprehensive data privacy law, which is super important to enumerate these rights in a Supreme Court that we have for the foreseeable. So um, so that, I think this is the, the, the fundamental question. And indeed, that law, so if we look at that as the closest we've come so far, uh, would have significant effects on the practices of so-called surveillance capitalism and would have some interesting effects on on leveling the playing field and and is a very interesting law to to see if it gets resurrected or revised um, but unfortunately TikTok is 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 more interesting for um, you know to go after and maybe there really are the serious issues that are these lawmakers have seen in the confidential hearing that we don't know about and that's animating them too I don't know, but um, you know this is this is a uh, the conversation that I hope we get to uh, once the TikTok situation is <laughs> resolved, if that's even possible, uh, so that then this what about Facebook or whatever to be a reason not to address the legitimate concerns around uh, TikTok, you know, shouldn't be um, an interference to getting things done either. Well, David Carroll, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Carroll, who's a professor of media design at the New School and director of its Design and Technology MFA program. He's known for legally challenging Cambridge Analytica and related companies in the UK courts to recapture his 2016 voter profile using European data protection law. Featured in the Netflix documentary The Great Hack, his work explores the intersections between media design, culture, policy, industry and education, and his research examines major shifts in media as it relates to advertising, ad tech, data rights, privacy, surveillance, social media and journalism. We're going to take a brief station break and be back investigating the unreported campaign conducted by Israel to influence the 2016 election to get Trump elected, which involved Israeli agents working for Netanyahu, who supplied the Trump campaign with information of the Russian hacks of Hillary Clinton's emails and the DNC. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Bamford, a best-selling author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker for PBS, award-winning investigative producer for ABC News, and the winner of the National Magazine Award for reporting on his writing in Rolling Stone on the war in Iraq. He's also circumnavigated the surface of the earth, crossing every meridian of longitudes by land and sea, and was elected to membership in the Explorers Club. He's the author of the best-selling books, Body of Secrets, The Puzzle Palace, A Pretext for War, 9-11, Iraq and the Abuse of America's Intelligence Agencies, and The Shadow Factory, Inside the Ultra-Secret NSA, From 9-11 to Spying on America. And his latest book, Just Out, is Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. And he has an article at The Nation, The Trump Campaign's Collusion with Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Bamford. Thanks, Ian. Great to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, James. And um, we're witnessing today with hearings before the Congress of the CEO of TikTok what's inherent in your book, and that is how 
spying has changed in the sense that everybody is carrying a, a little device that's known as an iPhone or a smartphone that's capable of spying on you and hoovering up your information. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of the charges against uh, TikTok are warranted, but how does it fit into you what's happening today in terms of the broader revelations in your book about the changing nature of spying? Well, the spying I'm writing about uh, involves Israel, um, and it's uh, sort of an old-fashioned type of spying. Uh, well, actually, it's a combination of the two. Um, th- what happened was, and again, this is based on material that came from the FBI, um, an FBI affidavit that outlines uh, everything, basically everything I'm talking about here. But what happened was that Israel, uh, particularly uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, wanted to influence the uh, uh, Trump campaign, wanted to secretly um, get the Trump campaign to agree to uh, some of the things he wanted in terms of what would happen if Trump became president. Um, So in order to do that, he sent over a secret agent from uh, Israel, a very close associate of of Netanyahu, to meet with uh, Trump's people, his uh, campaign, and see if he could uh, give some intelligence to Trump um, in exchange for material that uh, uh, Netanyahu wanted. He wanted uh, wanted concessions in terms of with the Palestinians, he wanted the capital of Jerusalem to be solely Israeli and not split between Israel and Palestine and so forth. So these were some of the concessions he wanted. And in order to get those concessions from Trump, um, he, like I said, sent an agent over to influence Trump and, and provide uh, intelligence if they were willing to go along with it. Well, he obviously, Netanyahu wanted to get out from under pressure from Obama and Kerry to make a deal with the Palestinians. But what I'm fascinated by, James, is how this go-between, who was working with Roger Stone in order to set up meetings with, with Trump, was offering up information about Russia's hacking. So how come the Israelis knew about what the Russians were up to? Because the point of the or bringing up is it wasn't just Russia that interfered in the 2016 election; it was also Israel. But that story has somewhat been buried. Right. the uh, The media and the Mueller investigation went on for about two years. They were constantly looking at Russia. Turns out Russia didn't do any collusion with the uh, Trump campaign. So. They spent two years uh, pretty much uh, wasting their time. There was no collusion between Russia and uh, the Trump campaign. Uh, that's the basically the conclusion of the of the um, Mueller investigation. But there was uh, collusion involving Israel, and uh, it never came out in the Mueller report. Never came out in the Senate Intelligence Committee report, and the. Uh, media was uh, looking in the wrong direction uh, during that entire two-year period. So uh, what had happened was that the Israelis have a very good uh, eavesdropping capability, uh, very similar to NSA. It's called Unit 8200. And uh, they do a great deal of uh, signals intelligence, eavesdropping on foreign countries. One of the countries they target specifically is Russia. So the Israeli... Signals Intelligence Agency, Unit 8200, was able to pick up indications of Russia penetrating the um, Hillary Clinton campaign and DNC and extracting thousands and thousands of emails. Unit 8200 was also able to penetrate WikiLeaks, which really wasn't very hard since it's not a nation, it's just an individual. So between the two, they were able to get advanced knowledge of the Russian hacking of the DNC and the Clinton campaign. And that was the information they were offering to um, uh, the, the Trump campaign. Uh, so they had that information. They didn't pass it on to their ally, which was the United States White House, the Obama administration. Instead, they were using it in order to try to elect the opponent, uh, Trump. Um, in order for Trump to 
give Netanyahu basically what he wanted, I mean, uh, cancellation of the nuclear uh, treaty, the nuclear accords, uh, uh, the uh, concessions involving the Palestinians not giving the Palestinians what they want and, and uh, acceding to what uh, Netanyahu and the Israelis wanted and so forth. So that was the deal. Um, the uh, the secret agent came over and made uh, contact with the uh, Trump campaign through Roger Stone and uh, Jerome Corzai and uh, laid out this deal. And later, what was it, September the 25th, Netanyahu met in person with Trump and Jared Kushner, did he not? Yeah, uh, they spent the entire summer dealing with Roger Stone and, and uh, attempting to make contact with Trump himself and scheduling high-level meetings with Trump. The uh, Not only the secret agent that, that Netanyahu sent over, but several other high, high-ranking uh, Israelis. The bottom line is at the end of the summer, in September, Trump agreed to what, what Netanyahu wanted. There was a private meeting between Netanyahu and uh, uh, Donald Trump in the penthouse of his uh, building in, in Manhattan. And Trump came out after the meeting with Netanyahu saying, um, if elected, I'm going to uh, recognize Jerusalem as being an, the undivided capital of, uh, of Israel. Every president, every administration previously has rejected that. And uh, so this was a major concession by Trump. He was elected, and that's exactly what he did. Well, what I find fascinating and depressing about this information that you brought out, James, is that it just reinforces this sense that I have that Americans don't necessarily control their own political destiny, that sort of they get whipsawed by obscure figures in the Middle East. You know, if you go back to the assassination of Bobby Kennedy by Sirhan Sirhan and Palestinian, that that certainly helped elect Nixon. And then we've just had revelations just in the last week about how the Reagan administration, using the emissary of Governor Connolly, went to the Middle East and got a message to the Iranians, to the Ayatollah Khomeini, to hold on to the American hostages until after the elections to hurt Carter and elect Reagan. So here you have another incidence of a country in the Middle East with its own agenda interfering in our elections. Oh, exactly. And uh, not only that, the uh, there was a cover-up afterwards. Um, you know, the Mueller report, uh, said nothing about this, even though uh, the FBI warrant uh, getting all this information uh, was in 2018. Um, so there was plenty of time for the uh, Mueller investigation to put this in their report. Uh, um, I mean, the investigation must have gone on for quite some time. Um, they submitted the, uh, the FBI submitted the application for a warrant uh, for the Israeli agent in 2018, and it's many years after that, and we still haven't heard anything. The Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, um, in their redacted report, uh, said nothing about it. So not only do you have a, uh, a foreign country, Israel, uh, attempting to uh, manipulate the American election, they, um, uh, the U.S. government and the Congress have uh, completely covered it up. Well, at this moment, there's a lot of pressure on Biden from American Jewish organizations, including, you know, the former head of APAC, wanting the, the White House to speak out now about what Netanyahu is trying to do in Israel, which thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have protesting about, which is just to basically to take over control of the judiciary and end the independence of Israel's Supreme Court. And this has alarmed American Jews in great numbers. And yet, for some reason or other, Biden doesn't even want to speak out against Netanyahu or pull him over. I mean, it's just amazing how we kowtow to Netanyahu, who's always, you know, been so flagrantly partisan and is probably working along with Mohammed bin Salman, to get Trump re-elected. I mean, isn't that, isn't that a reasonable supposition? Uh, 
Well, it is. It's uh, with uh, Israel. Uh, the uh, this has been going on for decades. The uh, uh, pretty much uh, uh, turning a blind eye to Israeli spying in the U.S. and and uh, it goes on on and on. That's the third. You know, if you talk to the intelligence people, it's the third most uh, active country uh, in, in the U.S. in terms of espionage after uh, Russia and China. So, um, but you never hear about it because they they continually cover it up. That's half my book is about uh, uh, Israeli spying in the United States and covert operations. Uh, um, and Israeli Israel has become the uh, uh, sort of the world center for uh, manipulating elections around the world. Uh, that's according to a uh, recent, I mean, within the last few weeks, uh, investigation by 30 journalist companies uh, from Haaretz in, in Israel to uh, The Observer and The Guardian in London to uh, La Paz in uh, Spain and, and Le Monde in France and Der Spiegel in Germany. They all got together and spent eight months looking into Israel's creating phony disinformation and interfering in elections worldwide. And it's extraordinary. It was published in all these 30 different uh, publications around the world. Not a, a single mention in, in uh, U.S. press um, or a single mention by any uh, anybody in the U.S. Congress or the, uh, the White House. So this is extraordinary. We give uh, Israel $4 billion a year, and yet they turn around and spy on us and they manipulate, uh, attempt to mid manipulate elections in the U.S. and around the world. Right, and when they catch an Israeli spy like uh, Pollard, the Israeli government and successive governments, whether they're Labour or Likud, pressure U.S. Uh, officials to release Pollard. That was high on their agenda. So they obviously take spying on America seriously. But again... Your new book, uh, James Bamford, Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence, also deals with Russia and China as well as Israel, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I look into uh, uh, spying from a number of countries. Uh, ironically, again, the same time that the uh, Mueller investigation and the press were, were uh, looking solely at Russia in terms of interfering with the election, not only was uh, Israel interfering in the election, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, had two spies in Hillary Clinton's campaign. They were there for the entire time. Neither the Secret Service nor the um, uh, FBI or any intelligence agency, the CIA, nobody uh, knew about it until uh, more than a year after the campaign. It, it was a totally successful uh, penetration of the Hillary Clinton campaign, and I have the FBI documents uh, about it, and and uh, they include the emails basically between the agents and the uh, Clinton campaign and the uh, prince, the crown prince of uh, the UAE. Uh, so you have spies. So that's in, that's MBZ, right? Yeah, Mohammed bin exactly. Zayed. Right, uh, and. Uh, there were two spies that were working directly for him, one that was working directly for for him, and then one agent that the uh, UAE spy uh, hired as a uh, front man so he could sort of get into the Clinton mm -hmm. campaign. But you see enormous, enormous amounts of greed there, too, because these spies were in there for the entire campaign, and the whole idea was they pay millions and millions of dollars uh, to get very up close and personal contact with Hillary Clinton. And that's what they did. So at, at several points, they wanted to give a private dinner to Hillary and her husband, uh, the former president, in the uh, spy's uh, uh, home near Los Angeles, one of the two spies. And the Clinton campaign demanded a million dollars. I mean, they just... Uh, basically said, uh, and this happened several times, you want to have a, a little cocktail party for us, it's going to cost you a million dollars. And they paid it. Uh, so it's the sleaziness of all this, in addition to the, the espionage. But again, I get into these, this espionage is not just uh, 
Israel and the UAE, the um, Chinese had a mole in the FBI for 15 years, uh, Alex Ma, uh, up until uh, just recently. He was just recently caught. And he's responsible for uh, the death of a lot of uh, agents in, in China um, because the Chinese mole was working in the FBI office uh, in Honolulu, which focused on China. And the, the security was so sloppy that the uh, FBI employee, who was actually a translator for the FBI, would take his documents and flash drives and so forth and fly back and forth to Shanghai uh, every few months to deliver the material in person. Um, and then he'd fly back and go back to work. Uh, so it's, it was extraordinarily sloppy for the uh, for him to get away with this for, for um, at least 15 years. Um, and uh, so I go into Chinese spies and Russian spies and Israeli spies, UAE spies. And that's the focus of the book is the, uh, the failure of, of, of the FBI's counterintelligence to discover these people. Well, the big fail that was revealed recently was the arrest of Charlie McGonagall, right? The chief of, of FBI counterintelligence in New York, which is the biggest counterintelligence office that the FBI has. Right, yeah. I mean, that was so blatant. He's, at the same time, he's working for, um, at the same time, he's in charge of counterintelligence for the FBI in New York. He's flying off to have secret meetings with the top officials in Albania with Russian uh, Russians Oligarch. that he's supposed to be watching. Yeah, um, Oligarch. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and so these are very blatant activities that the FBI not only uh, uh, missed, uh, the FBI was in essence participating in since he was a, uh, wasn't a former agent, he was a current agent. Right. Well, but he may have had an even more profound effect on the election than the Israelis or the Russians in terms of electing Trump in 2016 because McGonagall was a part of that clique in New York around Rudy Giuliani that pressured Comey to go public over Anthony Weiner's laptop, which was a disaster for Hillary Clinton. She blames Comey for her election loss. And it looks like McGonagall also managed to manipulate the New York Times into writing a story just before the election that gave Trump a clean bill of health and said there was no contacts with his campaign and the Russians. So those two events in themselves had a big effect, did they not? Well, that again, that, that's the focus of my book, is that uh, this is the agency that's supposed to be catching spies, and, and instead they're... Uh, turning a blind eye to spies or missing spies or, uh, and they're participating in, in, in these activities. So that was the purpose of doing this book. I saw so many examples of this and, uh, you know, I've written books uh, before on how the U S spies on foreign countries. So how we spy on, uh, uh, countries around the world with the national security agency, NSA, I did three books on the NSA, uh, including the puzzle palace and, and, uh, Body of Secrets and, and uh, the Shadow Factory. And so I thought on this one, I would look at how other countries are spying on us and how successful they are. So that was the whole purpose of doing this book. Let's now take a brief station break and be back continuing the conversation with James Bamford. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're continuing the conversation with James Bamford, the best-selling author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker for PBS, award-winning investigative producer for ABC News, and winner of the National Magazine Award for reporting for his writing in Rolling Stone on the war in Iraq. 
He has also circumnavigated the surface of the earth, crossing every meridian of longitude by land and sea, and was elected to membership in the Explorers Club. He's the author of the best-selling books Body of Secrets, The Puzzle Palace, A Pretext for War, 9-11, Iraq and the Abuse of American Intelligence Agencies, and The Shadow Factory, Inside the Ultra-Secret NSA, From 9-11 to Spying on America. And his latest book, Just Out, is Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. And he has an article at The Nation, The Trump Campaign's Collusion with Israel. So just in closing then, James Bamford, what do you think's going on now with manipulating the American public in order to bring Trump back in 2024? I'm assuming that Putin given how his military is not performing well in Ukraine, his probably number one priority is to get the American Congress, the House, and there's a lot of pro-Putin Freedom Caucus types there, and he's also got Tucker Carlson at Fox News on his side to influence the Congress to cut aid to Ukraine. We also know that Tucker Carlson has got Ron DeSantis on the record saying he was he would... Uh, cut their funds, and as well as Trump, of course, who would certainly do it. So that is more than a red flag to my mind. So what do you think is going on in terms of the similar active measures campaigns that the Russians and the Israelis conducted in 2016 to help elect Trump? What do you think they're doing today? Well, uh, I don't do that kind of thing. I don't uh, speculate. Um, I usually write um, or I try always to write on um, what I know about and what I know about from documents. That's the problem with the uh, media and, and social media largely is uh, over speculation and lack of actual um, evidence. So um, I have no idea what they're going to do in the future. Uh, I just know what they've done in the past. And that's what I've written about in my book. I mean, the whole issue of Ukraine is too complicated to get in at this point but it's too simplistic just to say um you know if you're if you're uh, against uh, all this money going to ukraine you must be a communist or a russian or, or whatever it's just absurd um there's valid um, arguments on both sides of the issue um and i think uh, the u.s certainly doesn't have a very good record of uh of dealing in in, uh, in foreign conflicts, um, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of uh, of, of killing uh, a lot of innocent people in uh, in Iraq, uh, based on um, uh, theories and ideas that turned out to be totally false. So I think it's very dangerous to uh, speculate a lot on, on on things that may not be true. Well, I'm not speculating on, I mean, I don't, how much is it to speculate that if the Russians were involved in active measures in 2016 along with the Israelis, I'm assuming they're doing it now. It would be a surprise if they weren't. Well, they may be, but again, I don't know. You you have to wait until the the evidence comes out and you'll write a, you'll write a book in a couple of years about it. Well, possibly, or maybe there will Maybe there won't be. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I don't do that. I don't look into the future what somebody may do. I look into the past of what somebody did do. And, and although the Russians hacked the uh, DNC and, and the uh, Clinton campaign, um, they didn't do the collusion. There was no collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign. And for two years, there was all this speculation and um, just total uh, nonsense in terms of uh, reporting on all the things that could be happening or might be happening but weren't happening. Mm -hmm. And by generating all that uh, uh, um, activity that looks looks in the wrong direction, um, that's how the Israelis were able to get get around... uh, being discovered largely. I mean, the press wasn't looking there. Uh, sure. So that, that's why uh, I'm just, I'll, you know, it's a free country. Anybody could do what they want. I'm just saying for me, I I don't do a lot of that because the Russians did that, they're going to do this. Or, or because the Israelis did that, they're going to do this. I'm just saying mm-hmm. 
this is what they did. Um, maybe they will, maybe they won't do it in the future. So, right. Well, what you've revealed is is an awful lot for us to digest, and it's incredibly important. And just in closing, are you getting the attention you should get, or is this another case where people just don't want to talk about Israel spying on the United States? Well, we'll see. The book just came out, but uh, I I really anticipate that uh, uh, the mainstream media and that uh, the group that associate with them, um, you know, prefer not writing or reporting about uh, bad things that Israel are doing. It's just been the history. There's just no question about it. And uh, we'll see. We'll see if there's any uh, any reporting on this. I mean, obviously, there should be some congressional investigation and maybe some arrests made. Uh, if you have a foreign country that's infiltrating or a uh, foreign country that's uh, uh, trying to manipulate a a U.S. election, including sending sending an agent over with uh, intelligence uh, to to hand to an opposition political party. Uh, I mean, if you don't have a congressional investigation of that, then uh, what, what's the point of having congressional investigations? Right. Well, this particular House, these Freedom Caucus radicals, they're going to be investigating Hunter Biden, but they're not going to be investigating. Jared Kushner, who got $2 billion from Mohammed bin Salman, who he clearly helped out with intelligence so that MBS could arrest all of his potential opponents. There, There's yet another example of a foreign government interfering along with the son-in-law of Trump. Well, as I said, the uh, <laughs> you have this enormously complex foreign journalistic investigation involving 30 outlets of the most respected uh, news uh, organizations around the world, spending eight months looking into Israeli election manipulating and disinformation and so forth. And there wasn't one peep. Um, I mean, it was in the news all over Europe, all over England, France, Germany, Spain, I- Israel even. Uh, I mean, Israel was part of that uh, Conglomeration mm. and, and uh, not, yeah. not a not a single uh, peep in the American mainstream media or any media, as far as I could find. Um, so there you have it. Uh, that that's uh, why the public is so misinformed about what's going on in uh, in Israel and, and other countries, but particularly Israel. Right. Well, uh, James, I thank you so much. I, I appreciate the work that you've done and I highly recommend your new book. Well, thanks, Ian. It's always great being on your show. Thanks again. And again, I've been speaking with James Bamford, who's a best-selling author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker for PBS, award-winning investigative producer for ABC News and winner of the National Magazine Award for Reporting for his writing in Rolling Stone on the war in Iraq. He's also circumnavigated the surface of the earth, crossing every medium of longitude by land and sea, and was elected to membership in the Explorers Club. He's the author of the best-selling books, Body of Secrets, The Puzzle Palace, A Pretext for War, 9-11, Iraq and the Abuse of America's Intelligence Agencies, and The Shadow Factory, Inside the Ultra-Secret NSA, From 9-11 to Spying on America. And his latest book just out is Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. And he has an article at The Nation, The Trump Campaign's Collusion with Israel. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more life.